Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Solo podcast today. Going to be talking about a little book we have been talking about. Uh, Process and Reality by Alfred North Whitehead. There's a picture of the fella. There's There's a picture of the fella in case you wondered. Mostly bald gentleman with some glasses. Nice tweed suit. Very professorial, you might say. All right, so what are we going to do today? Well, I told you this before. One of the things I like to do on these solo episodes of the podcast is I like to learn and I like to teach. So it's a little bit it's a little bit of both, you know. There's a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of ideas that I want to explore and maybe for one reason or another haven't uh, haven't done. So this gives me an opportunity to I don't know, force myself to do it a little bit, um, but it's fun for me. And um, and, I, and I've said before, I want to go through two um, kind of two components whenever I put together these solo episodes. One of them is the learning phase, where I'm reading the material, taking notes, studying it, trying to figure out what's what. And then the second part of it is teaching it, and that's what I'm doing for you uh, on the podcast. So if anybody's interested in what Alfred North Whitehead had to say or um, interested in what my take might be on the guy, um, this is the episode for you. So we've done a couple of these already. I mentioned I talked about Alfred North Whitehead in the um, the Modes of Sentience episodes that we did some time ago. Um, I did one, uh, maybe one or two already on uh, Whitehead. So this is kind of getting into the meat of it. And I thought what I would do is just be really... Um, Transparent, like there are things that he says that I don't understand, and uh, I'm doing my best. You know, I'm doing my absolute best, and um, some of it's not fair. I mean, I got to push through. I have to continue reading uh, in order to uh, maybe get the other information that's going to make this clear to me. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm like a third of the way through the book right now. So I'm, I'm just giving you a grain of salt uh, note here. I'm not all the way through it, but I have some questions. You know. Um, one of the things I'd hoped to do um, some time ago was to have uh, Dr. Shirsted Hughes on the podcast, who's the gentleman who introduced me to Whitehead, and, and um, ask him some of these questions, because it's just far easier to get to, to have a conversation about it than it is to try to make up your own mind. But on the other hand, it's important, I think, that that I make up my own mind. It's important that we make up our own minds. And so often we're um, tempted to let better people, wiser people, more educated people tell me what somebody said or what somebody meant or what some idea means. And and most of the time, for efficiency's sake, we're more than happy to accept those answers and carry on living our lives. 
Um, but I'm not happy with that. I, I want to know what I think of Alfred North Whitehead. I want to know what I think about all the different things that we talk about on this podcast. Um, I want to come up with my own ideas, and I want to borrow somebody else's as good as they might be. So that's what I'm trying to do, and and uh, I think in order to be honest, to continue on that path, um, I don't want to sit here and pretend that I'm an expert and pretend that I understand all this stuff thoroughly. This is very complicated stuff. Kyle mentioned on, on our episode uh, this past weekend um, that I was calling the kettle black, talking about Alfred North Whitehead as being confusing and taking issue with some of the things he says. And Kyle's like, look, man, <laughs> he's like, look, you, you talk about all the same stuff and you're just as confusing, if not more. And I'm like, yeah, you, you got a point. You got a point. Um, it is difficult to talk about this stuff. And so I shouldn't blame Alfred North Whitehead for that. I have the same uh, obstacles. Um, but what he what he's trying to do here, and you may remember from the last episode, is he's saying, look, I'm going to start with what it's like to have a human experience, what it's like to be a human being. And I'm going to try to put together a model of reality of how the world works, how it's put together, um, all based upon the facts of my experience, the stuff that I know, certainly, because it's the only thing you can know, certainly, um, your experience, your immediate experience. How can you question that? So that's what he's doing. And the model that he's come up with, I told you guys many times, includes a lot of words that he seems to have made up or repurposed for this philosophical reason. And in trying to explain things using words like actual entity, eternal object, ingression, prehension, concrescence. I mean, fuck, for fuck's sake, Whitehead. Every single time I come across a word like that, I have to look it up, and then I have to remember what it means, and that's all part of the process, you guys. That's part of, the, that's part of learning. Um, you know, you kind of you got to put your head space. you got to fit it neatly into Alfred North Whitehead's head space and try to understand where he's coming from. And I think what, what you're going to hear today is some issue that I'm going to take with some of this stuff because he says he's starting from the the fact, the, the proof that is obvious to us, our immediate experience. And yet, from that, he claims to come up with all these various components of our experience, eternal objects, actual entities, and so on. And I don't entirely understand why he thinks that's fundamental, why he thinks that flows from an understanding of what it's like to be a human being. It seems like... I'm looking for the evidence as to where he comes up with this stuff, and I'm starting to struggle with it. And I'm not throwing all of this away. I think it's brilliant, so don't get me wrong. But I'm going to take issue with, in particular, what the hell is an eternal object? What the hell is an actual entity? Because it's not clear. And Whitehead said that those are the key components of our experience. Um, he says this in all sorts of ways. He says that um, the process... You know, and this is this is fundamental to Whitehead because he says that reality is a process. You know, and the process seems to be the process of thing of things, whatever that might mean, going from a state of potential to a state of actual. So something from nothing, creation magic, the kind of stuff that we hear about uh, in religious stories. He's talking about this in terms of our experience. You know, and I don't know if this fits in, but I'll just mention our experience. Our consciousness is something like this creation magic that we hear about in religion, by the way. You know, 
Aristotle had a big problem with the idea of something from nothing, you know, and Whitehead does too. We're going to talk about that today. But nothing just comes from, something doesn't just come from nothing. It doesn't happen that way. So Aristotle talked about the need of having a prime mover, an unmoved mover, something like God in Aristotle's perspective. Um, lost my train of thought a little bit. Okay, so um, let, let me, let's do this. Let's change gears here, um, and we'll and we'll start getting into the actual uh, actual lecture today. So I'm going to call this "What the Hell is an Actual Entity?" Uh, because I honestly want to know what the hell is an actual entity. Um, Whitehead talks about well, he calls actual entities drops of experience, and that's supposed to help us understand what he means by that. An actual entity, he says, is the the things that are real in reality. He also says that they're organisms, that they're alive, and that they're made up of other of other organisms. He also says that organisms are really aren't a different thing than just saying the word experience. So you almost have this notion that experiences are alive all by themselves. And that when you have complex entities like a human being, what it is is made up of a tremendous amount of individual experiences that are alive, all organized and connected together to become some larger, more complex version of, of an experience. And we're going to call that a human being in this case. So it's kind of interesting to think about that way. In, in Whitehead's mind, a creature doesn't need to be a physical being. And that's weird. But it also reminds you of Carl Jung, who, and we're going to talk about some of this today, um, because Carl Jung has a lot in common with Plato, and so does Whitehead, and we're going to get into that. Um, Carl Jung talked about archetypes, if you guys remember all the Carl Jung episodes that I've been doing. And he talks about these archetypes as, as though they're self-contained personalities, and they're forces. They have power psychologically. What they do is they, they have motivational power. So if I have... Um, an archetypal um, experience, or if I'm affected by the power of an archetype, what it's going to do to me is influence me to behave in a certain way or to think in a certain way. Um, I know that's abstract, but a good example to use is when you become angry, because because anger is it's something like a deep archetypal force, and you can understand that because we all have to have this, and we all do have this... Um, beast, this beast in us, you know, in potential. And if we ever find ourselves in a situation where it's fight or flight and there's nowhere to run, we all have to have this beast, right? It's all, it's just natural. It's part of our animal heritage, you might say, that if we have to fight tooth and fucking claw, we can. So if you get angry, if you get backed in the corner, you have this force that you can rely on that seems to be sleeping in the background somewhere and it just gets woken up by the circumstances and you become a monster and you've always had that monster within you you know young might call that the shadow or, or or something like that but what you have to understand is when you get possessed by that spirit the greeks called that spirit Ares, the god of war you know when you get possessed by that spirit it has it's so strange to say that part of your personality takes over so in a way right it takes over and you become Ares, God of War, you know? You become anger. And it's it's got its own motivations. And it's got its own personality. 
and it takes you over. And so you have to understand that you've got a bunch of personalities like that in Plato's words. You've got a, you've got a gun, bunch of you know, spirits like that that make up your personality, that belong to you, that, that compose you, right? You're made up of a whole bunch of these independent personalities that live on their own. They have a mind of their own. And Carl Jung is the first person to, to tell you that. Um, they have desires, they have they have wills, and they have motivational power all of their own. And they're all working within you, you know, pulling the strings, pushing and pulling. And we deal with that all the time. We deal with, um, you know, having conflicting goals, having conflicting priorities, being pulled instinctually in multiple ways at once. We all, we know we have things that exist within us that are, if you think about it, to some degree independent of us. Right? When I was talking about the anger example, you can see how they take over, right? Who's in charge then? Is it you or is it Aries, God of War, you know? Um, something like that. So these actual entities, these drops of experience that Whitehead talks about, they're organisms. They're alive, they're independent, and if, and if they weren't a part of you, let's say, they would still exist on their own. They have an, an independent existence to you. And somehow they simultaneously make up this greater being that you call yourself. And Whitehead has no problem. This, this is exactly how he sees the world, as a complex net web of experiences that are all interconnected with each other. He also talks about feeling and satisfaction. We're going to hear about that today. It's very important for Whitehead, the the idea of feeling. And I think that's interesting and strange because when we talk about consciousness and we talked about David Chalmers and Peter Shirstead Hughes and Philip Goff and all these, all these guys that talk about consciousness, they talk about qualia. And qualia is, is some, it's, it's unexplainable to a, in a manner of speaking. It's what, it's what's associated with the hard problem of consciousness. So when people say we don't understand consciousness at all, well, that's very true. But what he's, what, what they mean by that, and this is what David Chalmers kind of made so clear, is that it's, it's not really about having consciousness of ourselves and the physical reality that we find ourselves in, the world and the cosmos and the objects that are around us. That's not really difficult at least it's not as difficult to explain as how those things feel, right? What is the experience of an object? What is the experience of being alive? What does it feel like? So when we talk about feeling, we're talking about experience, a manner of experience. Being is another word that we could talk about, but Whitehead is going to use the word feeling, and I think it's really important to talk about because that is associated with our consciousness, and it's something that can't be explained by the laws of physics. Physics cannot tell you why, when you're injured, you have a feeling of pain. An injury could have a completely physical cause and effect description, nothing, nothing more to see here. But there is something more to see here. There's the feeling of, ouch, right? There's the stinging pain. There's the bringing your attention to it. There's all the, the feeling of the heat of the blood and the stickiness of it, all of the qualities of our experience. And the question is, why, oh, why should an injury feel like something? What, why? What's the purpose? Is it necessary? Why did that, why did that evolve? If it evolved, what is going on here? Why? It doesn't seem necessary. It doesn't seem important. So why does it exist? Why does it feel like something to be 
to be hurt? Why does it feel like something to smell a fragrance? Why does it feel like something to hear a song? Why does it feel like something to put your toes in the grass? It's, it, there's nothing about the laws of physics that can tell you anything at all about the qualities of our experience. And Whitehead is going to focus on this. He's going to say that how things feel are metaphysically significant, deeply metaphysically significant. And so you can imagine if we're starting where Whitehead starts with the experience and we're saying this is something that's fundamental, then how things feel fulfills the experience. It's almost like we're talking about synonyms, feeling and experience. And Whitehead is going to talk about novel experiences, like when things are created that didn't exist before, when things go from potential to actual and you have something new. What does that mean? It means you have something new to experience. So anything new is just something added on to this web of experience. And for Whitehead, that's kind of the goal of, of whatever this experience generating machine is, you know, that we're just going to call reality for, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and so the goal of reality is experience and new, ever new experience. It's like, in my language, I might say, if God is all there is, which I believe to be true, then every different way of experiencing God, let's say, and every experience would be like that. If God is all there is, every experience is an experience of God. If you're not comfortable with that language, uh, tough titty, that, that's, that's what I like to, uh, how I like to frame it. So if God is all there is to experience, then every experience is a unique way of experiencing God or maybe a, uni a unique way of being God or manifesting God or, or actualizing God, whatever language you want to use. This all is the way Whitehead sees it as the ultimate goal of, of everything, experience. So, so when he talks about something new being created, and you can imagine this magical, you know, divine creation magic that we talked about earlier, something new is poofed into being. To Whitehead, that is something new to be experienced. It gets incorporated into the web of experience that, you know, is all interconnected, the one organism that makes up everything. Um, and that feeling is what Whitehead calls satisfaction. So you can see what I mean when that being the goal of things, that being kind of the metaphysical goal of reality. He calls it satisfaction. I mean, think I mean, you couldn't have picked a better word if that's what you mean. So you have an experience, and that experience brings the new experience into the fold of the existing experience. It unifies everything together. And that is exactly what God is, the one, the mystical one. And so um, that's satisfaction. That's what God wants. God wants to experience more of it. It wants to manifest more of itself to experience more of itself or experience it differently. However you want to see it, there's an infinity of experience involved. And, uh, you know, we use the word infinity in connection with God and explicitly, really. You could say we might connect it with the cosmos, but I don't see a difference between that and God. So this is where we are. We're going to talk about feeling and qualia. We're going to talk a lot about Plato today because, as, as Whitehead is going to tell us, uh, the history of 
European philosophy or the history of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato, and um, that's you know that's Whitehead's quote. <laughs> so we're gonna talk a lot about Plato today. Um, to make things more confusing, Plato talks about forms. He talks about the world of forms, and I'll explain this. I've done it before, but I'll explain it as briefly as I can. Plato looks at things in the world, and he tries to understand what their essences are. So what I mean is, if you had if you had fifty different dogs all lined up in a row of different breeds. You're looking at these dogs, you're examining them, and you can see, and maybe you even intuit, that all of these dogs have something in common. They're all dogs, but they all look different, not one identical. They sound different, you know, they behave differently, but there's lots of similarity that overlaps all of these 50 different dogs. So there's something like an essence, right? There's something like an essence that unifies all of these different dogs. We can say every one of these actual dogs is something like a model of this potential dog. And I'm going to call that the essence of the dog that these other dogs are all based on. Different versions of this pattern. You know, Young would call that pattern archetypal. Um, Whitehead is going to say that form, like, like Plato's describing with essences that it's something that exists within God or within what he calls the primordial nature of God, which which we'll get into in a little bit, um, and that God's mind, which is ultimately what this means, is populated by eternal objects. And eternal objects are Plato's forms. They're the essences um, that uh, correspond to a particular form. The, in this case, in this example, the form of a dog. In Whitehead's model, the eternal objects make the dog a particular dog. So there's a little bit of an inconsistency between that and uh, Young's archetypes. But this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a model that's very much like Plato's world of forms. So into Plato's mind, you've got the essence of a dog, the essence of an elephant, the essence of a plant, you know, anything you could think of. It's got a form upon which it's based and that form doesn't exist in the world. It's not an actual thing, right? The different types of dogs are actual versions of the form, but where's the form? Where is the form? And that's what Plato's going to say. Um, he's going to in- introduce the idea of a world of forms. It's this parallel world. Let's say it, it exists just behind ours, and it contains all of the essences contains all of the potentiality for these specific actual things to come into being. And it's something like what Whitehead is going to talk about. Um, So without further ado, that's kind of the landscape of what we're going to talk about today. A real brief introduction, um, something like this. So where we left off last time, I had lots of lingering questions, but one in particular. Just what precisely is an actual entity so Whitehead calls them drops of experience. To me, that clarifies nothing, you know. To call it a drop of experience, to me, sounded a bit like these are the components of experience or the smallest possible form of experience or something like that. But it, the more I read, the more it sounds like the potential for experience. And I use this example a lot. I'm going to try to use it again today. It's something like a stem cell. You know, if we could think about stem cells, a stem cell is a cell, but it's not, it's undifferentiated. It hasn't become any particular type of cell. It's more like the potential for a cell. It can become any type of cell. 
this is what I think is the closest I can come to what Whitehead means by an actual entity, a drop of experience. But where I differ here in my understanding is that Whitehead calls actual entities the things that exist in, in the real world. Well, that doesn't really seem to be a stem cell to me, but maybe it is. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe, maybe, maybe all of experience is undifferentiated. Maybe experience is all one thing, and I think Whitehead would agree with that. Where we get the perspective of what it, of what the world seems like to us, you know, maybe that's not something that's imposed. Maybe that's not something that comes, you know, in the experience, but rather it's imposed upon it, like an interpretive framework of some kind. And maybe consciousness plays a role in this. You know, I haven't really thought this particular uh, idea out very well, but it's something probably that I'll need to noodle on. But what we'll do today is we'll see if, if Whitehead provides an answer to the question, what is an actual entity? We're going to explore that notion um, and all the other uh, abstract notions that Whitehead brings up that still rest mostly in the dark. We're going to hear about data. He's going to talk about data today. He's going to talk about feeling and concrescence. So we're going to get into some of this vocabulary but we're going to have as many questions on these ideas as we do about actual entities. So Spoiler alert, that's that's kind of how we're going to end today. With a little help from Plato and John Locke, we'll see just how far Whitehead can take us. And that brings me to my first segment we're going to call Fact and Form. Okay. The scheme of interpretation here adopted can claim the authority of Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Locke, Hume and Kant. The safest characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. So there you go. So that's the opener, and it kind of sets the stage. What in the first episode that we did, it was Whitehead said, "Look, I'm going to be speculating about this stuff. I'm going to be using my imagination, but it's going to be." contained. It's going to be controlled. I'm not going to be giving wild speculation. What I'm going to be doing is speculating as much as possible um, within the confines of logic, logical consistency, and uh, and so forth. So what he's doing here is reinforcing this, saying, look, the speculation that I'm going to be talking about today is backed up by many of the great philosophers that have, the greatest philosophers that have come before me. And he, and he quotes Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, John Locke, Hume, Immanuel Kant. So these are the giants of the Western philosophical tradition from the beginning all the way to the critique of pure reason with Kant. Um, so he's so he's basically saying there's a pedigree um, that's going to back up some of these claims. And he is careful in there to say that, you know, the, he's claiming the authority of these philosophers, but he says nothing can rest on the authority of someone else. So he does, he says, look, you know, this is going to give more support to what I'm going to say, but, you know, you can't take it from me, and you certainly can't take it from any of these other guys. So it's a little bit of a grain of salt situation. Then he goes on, he says, the train of thought in these lectures is platonic, with the least changes made necessary by the intervening 2,000 years of human experience. In such a philosophy, the things which are temporal arise by their participation in the things which are eternal. I want to push on, but I'll circle back to that. 
He says the two sets are mediated by a thing which combines the actuality of what is temporal with the timelessness of what is potential. This final entity is the divine element in the world by which potentialities obtain realization. Man. Okay, so what is he saying? He's saying starting out from a uh, platonic perspective, like we just talked about, the actual world and the world of forms and how they exist and, and you know, interrelate to each other is hard to describe. Um, another example I've used before, which may help when we're talking about essences or forms, is the idea of beauty. That's a really, really stereotypical example. And I always said before, you can see something beautiful like a, a beautiful song, a beautiful sunset, and a beautiful body. You see all three things, you say... Clearly, they're all beautiful. But what is it about them that's beautiful? Can you say what's common between these three examples that's beautiful? It's very, very hard to do, especially with those different types of examples. Like, what do you point to? So those are, um, those essences are the potential that, that Whitehead and, and Plato were going to talk about. And they become real. They become actualized. Um, so you have this essence that becomes materially real. You know, you've got this idea that sounds a lot like a religious idea, you know, you know manifestation, right? Or, or um, embodiment, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, the Christ story is a good example. God made man. And that's kind of what this relationship is platonically between forms and, and reality, between potential and actual. It's the potential made actual. That's what reality is. That's exactly what the religious stories tell us happened in creation. The potential becomes actual. So that's what we're going to talk about here. He says, the things which are temporal, he just, those are just the things that are bound by time, you know, everything we know. The things which are temporal arise by their participation in the things which are eternal. So you've got these eternal forms, these eternal essences, and the things that actually exist in the world participate in them. And you can see that, you know, you can say there's a beautiful song. Well, I don't know what beauty is exactly. I can't point to it. I can't put it in a jar. But the goddamn song is beautiful, so beauty must exist. How? Where? I don't exactly know. But beauty must exist because this is an example of something beautiful. And so that's how something particular, something actual, like a, like a song or a body or a sunset, um, ha how it demonstrates that thing that doesn't seem to exist anywhere, beauty. Where does it exist? Well, it's in the sun, it's in the song, but where else? Like, where, where does that beauty come from? Does it exist apart from these objects? It's hard to say. You know, if the sun dies, is, is, are we saying there's no more beauty in the world? If there's, no, if there's no singing and there's no suns and there's no bodies? Beauty still exists, even if, even if just in potential. And what does that mean? It means that potential is something. In fact, it means that potential might be more real than the actual things that we call real. Because they couldn't exist without the potential. It's very strange. You can see how it's borders on the religious immediately. So we have these, these actual things that are bound by time, and we have these eternal things which aren't. And Whitehead says that those two sets, the potential and the actual, are mediated by a thing which combines the actual with the timeless potential. 
So, I don't know. Where does your mind go? Well, Whitehead says there are, these two things are mediated by a thing. What? What thing, man? You can't just say these two things are mediated by a thing. What thing? What mediates between potential and actual? I mean, I can go back to Jordan Peterson's book, Maps of Meaning, and tell you he structures maps of meaning in a similar way. He talks about the, um, well, the religious stories of creation, and he says that you've got a, you've got a, a divine mother figure, which is which is called chaos. You've got a divine father figure, which is called order. So you've got these two things that are like potential and actual, just like we're talking about, and they are also mediated, you know, and they're also, according to Peterson, a process going going on back and forth between them that the chaos is constantly being made, um, you know, made into order. And what mediates between them to Jordan Peterson and these religious stories that he refers to is the divine son. That's the Jesus figure. That's that's the hero figure. That's also That's also the figure of consciousness being born. So consciousness mediates between chaos and order. And so I don't know how we can map that on the whitehead apart from saying maybe something like experience mediates between the actual and the potential. But we're talking about something very, very similar. Okay, now whatever this thing is that mediates between the, the, the potential and the actual, whatever it is that can make something potential into something actual, whatever that is, Whitehead calls it the final entity and the divine element in the world. I mean, clearly, something that can take something potential and make it real and make it manifest in the world, that's the divine element, you know? Something from nothing, that's creation magic. For sure, that's divine, that's the divine element in the world. And he said, that's the thing by which potentialities obtain realization. What does that mean? The divine element allows something that doesn't yet exist, the potential for experience, to become an actual experience. And there's a little bit of weird language here because we're not exactly talking about, when I say something from nothing, I don't mean like the way that the religious stories say, that matter was created, like God snaps his fingers and the sun is there and the planets are there. I'm not talking about something from nothing like that. I'm talking about experience from where there was none before. Because we don't know a difference between our experience of the world and the things that we call matter and energy. You reach out and touch something and you think something is there. We, don't, we have no way of making a distinction because all we have is our conscious experience. I have no idea whether there's really something there. What I'm experiencing may be just an illusion. It may just be my own consciousness in some way. And that's what the, that's what, uh, the idealists say all the time. And I think Whitehead, the more I read, I think Whitehead is very much an idealist. All right, so I'm going to give you the answer to this, what this thing is that mediates between potential and actual, because Whitehead actually gives us an answer a little bit later in the book. I'll just give you the quote. He says, The notion of God is still necessary to mediate between physical and conceptual prehensions. So he, he, this is his word. So again, when he says the two sets are mediated by a thing which combines the actuality with the potentiality, what is that thing? God. He said God is still necessary to mediate between 
the physical, you know, the actual, and the potential. So I don't know exactly how Whitehead understands God, but he does say that God is an, is an actual entity, that God is not any more fundamental than you or I. He's a part of this process. I say he, but it is a part of this process that everything is, it belongs to. And it's just another part of it. But it's the part of it that allows the, the potential to become actual. Now, I have, I, have, I have problems with this. I have, I have lots of cognitive dissonance when I try to understand that. To me, God may be the thing that mediates between the potential and the actual. He may, may be, but God is also the thing that we call potential and actual. There isn't a difference, you know? If God plays a role in making the potential actual, in my mind, you have to conceptualize that as the potential and actual exist within the thing we call God. Maybe it's an action of God somehow. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's not an action at all. Maybe it's what God is, full stop, you know? It's like I don't have to try, let's say, to breathe or to live or to exist. I don't it's not it's not something that's I'm willing, you know? It just is. Maybe that's maybe that's the case with God, whatever that thing is that we call God. It just does what Whitehead is saying. It just is the thing that transforms itself from potential to actual, something like that. And that makes more sense to me than than organizing it the way Whitehead is. So I'm hoping that this idea of, of God will become more clear as we work through it, but let's push on. He says, each eternal object has relevance to each concrescent process. Okay, so there's more to that, but let me just stop because you have to understand what concrescence means. So each eternal object, those are the forms or the essences that we talked about. They're relevant to each concrescent process. And what he means by concrescence is exactly what we talked about. The process of going from potential to actual. So, concrescence is becoming an actual experience, an actual entity. And you can't do that without, without a form, right? An actual entity is a specific thing. It's a particular thing. It can't become particular unless it, unless it has a form. And that form comes from uh, God, the primordial nature of God. That's what Whitehead says. Plato says, you know, there's this world of forms. Can't really say much else about it, but it must exist. And this is what Whitehead is saying, that you need those forms to make an experience a particular experience. And until it becomes a particular experience, it isn't an experience. It's hard to explain, but it's very simple at the same time. What would an experience be if it's an experience of nothing in particular? Hard to say. Is it is it an experience at all? Now suppose God, whatever that is, is something like that. Experience, undifferentiated. The stem cell for experience. It's just the potential for experience. Because it's the potential for experience, it wants to be experienced. You know, it, That's what it is. It's the potential for experience. So how does it do that? It can only become an experience. It can only be experienceable when it becomes a particular experience. And this is something that we bumped into when we talked about um, Bernardo Castro before. He's another idealist philosopher, somebody that believes that you know the physical 
physical realities are either are either in our minds an illusion or they're con constituted of mind stuff mentation as he calls it so it's, i know that's confusing but the idea here is imagine god or experience however you want to um, formulate this is eternal you know we have this idea that god is eternal or or stands outside of time somehow and there's no end to whatever god is these are things that are very fundamental to the idea of god if god is eternal That's another obstacle to experience, right? Like how would you experience something that has no, either either has no experienceable characteristics or has them all, has an infinite amount, right? And I don't know what the difference might be because those things to me sound very much the same. If an experience is all of the experiences that are possible wrapped into one or if it has no no specific experience, experienceable qualities. I don't know the difference, right? Because I can't experience something that doesn't have any experienceable qualities. I also can't experience something that has them all. And you might push back on that, but think about it. Experiences are finite things, you know? They're limited by time. They're limited by a certain quality. Not all experiences have every quality. And if they did, can you even understand what that would be? What would it mean? If an experience had all of the qualities of experience at once, it wouldn't be an experience, right? So it's something like, it's something like that. And Bernardo Castrop says, look, in his mind, what's fundamental is mind. So God is something like mind, you know, mind not attached to a body necessarily, just like that's the fundamental thing. We think atoms or quantum energy or something is is fundamental to bernardo it's mind and and it's infinite right just like the cosmos is infinite so in order for you to have an experience of it bernardo says you have to have a dissociation you have to have this infinite mind breaking up into smaller categories breaking up into having boundaries formed between itself so that it can look across the veil and say there i am that that's what i am so now I can have an experience of myself because I can see through this arbitrary boundary myself. It's like looking at yourself in the mirror. Oh, there I am. And this is exactly what, what Whitehead seems to be saying. You know, you can't have an actual reality until it is a particular type of experience. That's what makes it, you know, real. So it can't be attached to all possible qualities of experience. It can't be attached, uh, you know, or, or uh, undifferentiated. It has to be split up somehow. There has to be boundaries or borders that allow it to become experienceable, that allow it to be a specific thing. So let's just say God is all possible things. And I can break off a little chunk of that, or I can build a little wall around a chunk of that and say, you know, that's gravity, or, you know, that's heat, or you know, whatever. It's until I build that wall and isolate that thing and say, that's a thing. It's everything all at once, and that means it's nothing. And this is what we have to, to wrestle with when we're thinking about potential becoming actual. Okay, that's what he means when he says an eternal object that's a form has relevance to each concrescent process to be something becoming real. It has to have a form that limits it so that it can be experienceable, something like that. And then he says, apart from such orderings, 
eternal objects would be unrealized in the temporal world. Novelty would be meaningless and inconceivable. So, without these, without these boundaries that, that are being um, that we're, we're referring to that allow for experience to happen without potential becoming actual, it's not possible for anything new to be. It's not. It's not possible for experience to be. And and he says something interesting because he 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 doesn't say that that means there's there's nothing. He just says that eternal objects would be unrealized. So, so the God part, these eternal objects, the forms, the essences, that still exists. But it's not made real, you know? And I can't help but think about the Jesus story when we talk about this, because what's supposed to be so important about the Jesus story is that he's, he's God made real. And I think that's a... That's an analogy that we can extend and should extend to all of reality. It's not just it's not just the Christ figure that is potential made actual, God made manifest. It's everything you see and yourself included. All the thoughts in your head, all the concepts and ideas, the mathematical ideas, the trees and the leaves and the cosmos and everything you can everything that's imaginable is exactly that. Exactly the thing that Christ is supposed to said to be the potential of existence made real. Okay. And now Whitehead quotes Descartes. So we're going to talk about some other philosophers today, but here we go. Descartes says, Every conception or percepto is without doubt something. So every idea is without doubt something and hence cannot derive its origin from what is not. So there's more to that, but this is good. Every conception or perception, everything you see and think, is without doubt something. We can all agree. We can all agree with that. Our thoughts and our experiences are definitely something. I'm not sure I can tell you much more than that, but we can all agree there's something. And so they can they cannot have come from nothing. That's what Descartes says. They are something, and they couldn't have come from nothing. He says. And then Whitehead says, this general principle will be termed the ontological principle. So every, every object of thought and matter comes from something that exists. Comes from something. So this is a little bit contrary to Aristotle, right, who, who talked about an, un, well, an un, well, I guess his unmoved mover could, we, could, we could kind of put uh, in the same context. But the ontological principle is everything that exists comes from something, and that includes your thoughts and perceptions. He says, it is the principle that everything is somewhere in actuality and in potency everywhere. Okay. So the ontological principle that we're talking about, he says, it's the principle that everything is somewhere in actuality and in potency everywhere. So everything that exists is somewhere, every, every actual thing that's come from potential and been made actual is somewhere and yet, it, its potency is everywhere. So, this goes back to the idea that, to Whitehead, everything is experience. And all experience is interconnected. So, any particular experience, and you can call that a thought, you can call that a perception, you can call that an object, you can call it whatever you want. Um, that, every, that every one of them exists in this web of experience somewhere. It's all a part of this, this greater organism. 
So it's somewhere within the mix. And yet its potency is everywhere. Its experience acts upon the entire thing. This reminds me of chaos theory a little bit. So you guys probably know that that uh, turn of phrase that the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil or something call, may cause a um, uh, tsunami in Asia or something. I don't know exactly how it goes, but something like that. Chaos theory. Everything is connected, and so some, some small cause somewhere has a greater effect some, in some distant, far-flung place you can never have imagined that those connections would, would exist or, or you know, the, do, the dominoes would work that way as they start to fall. But that's, how the, way, that's the way the world is. Everything is interconnected. And so everything is somewhere, but its potency is everywhere. Something like that. So actual things exist in relation to all other things in a unique particular way and affect the entire system of relations that it's a part of. So that would be my way of saying it. Whitehead says, The ontological principle is the description of the universe as a solidarity of many actual entities. Each actual entity is an active experience arising out of data. So here we have another... Another word that comes up, data, that we still don't have a, a, an answer for. So it's like him saying, a thing mediates between. Okay, well, what is a thing? And in this case, he says, actual entities arise out of data. What do you mean by that? What is data, and where did it come from? Is data fundamental? What are you talking about, man? Okay, so he says that the universe is a solidarity of many actual entities. That's just, you can imagine that web, that complex, you know, four-dimensional web of experience all connected to one another. I'm, I'm imagining in my head like the, the neurons in a brain all connected if you've seen those images. And he says each actual entity is an act of experience arising out of data. So my question is, what is the data, where did it come from, and so on. He goes on, he says, it is a process of feeling the data to absorb them into the unity of one individual satisfaction. Okay, so experience arises out of data. Now, it seems to me there must be something to experience the data. Um, maybe that goes back to the idea of God again, but it's not clear here. Like, I'm imagining, and maybe this is just a, the limitations of the time that I exist in. But I'm imagining like a, an old-fashioned tape, like the way computers used to be in the early days, where, um, like in the very early days, they literally had what looked like punch cards and long stretches of paper. And all the punch cards, all the punches in the cards um, were particular data points. And so you would have that uh, fed through a machine, and the machine would read the data points. So what I'm saying here is there needs to be something reading the data points. If you, if you have data only, do you have anything at all? Like unless something is reading the data, do you have anything at all? So this is, this is what's interesting to me. Each actual entity is an active experience arising out of data. So an actual entity is an experience. And data seems to be, you know, the, um, uh, the object of that experience, something like that. But what's reading the data? How do we get an actual entity out of data? It, you know, it's very, very strange. It's like the actual entity, which is this drop of experience, this potential for experience, it's always there. 
And the data, is it always there? Is it, is it part of the actual entity? I don't, what does that mean? And so he says that it's a process of feeling the data. And again, I'm, I'm thinking, what's feeling the data? You know, he says the actual entity is the experience of the data. Um, it's just not clear to me what the relationship is between the actual entity and the data. But it is clear that they're felt, which is something that consciousness does. And a, a consciousness is something that I, uh, I think is synonymous with God as far as I'm concerned. So I have an answer there, but I don't know if it's Whitehead's answer. And he does say that, that feeling the data absorbs that into the entity itself. And that may sound strange, but it's like, look, I read a book like I'm, like I'm doing here. And the, inf the information in Whitehead's ideas, they become a part of me. They become a part of, part of my repertoire. They become a part of the organization of ideas in my mind, how I think about things, right? So I have an experience of this book, and the information in this book does become part of me in a, in a, in a way hard to describe. So that's this whole feeling or experiencing the data. Whitehead says absorbs it into one individual satisfaction. So the ideas that Whitehead brought to the table, they'll get absorbed into mine and into one synthesis, right? Of all the ideas I've had before, now these new ones get, get fitted into the uh, complex of ideas, right? So they become one synthesis. And this is exactly what Whitehead thinks happens with everything. Everything is made up of experience. Experience is always being synthesized back into one thing. That one thing is the organism that makes up reality. Okay, he says, feeling is the operation of passing from the objectivity of the data to the subjectivity of the actual entity. So feeling is the thing that makes brute data, you know, potential into something actual. Feeling takes something potential and makes it actual. Isn't that interesting? So if brute data is what is objective, let's call that God, it's being experienced or felt, let's call that consciousness, is the act of creation, isn't it? It's God experiencing itself into actuality. That aligns with the mystical tradition. To a T. God experiences itself into being. Potential experiences itself into actuality. Something like that. All right, he goes on. He says, an actual entity is a process and is not describable in terms of stuff. Okay, so an actual entity is a process. So what does he mean by that? Well, he explains this in, in detail. Um, he says it's a process of prehensions, which is something like self-organizing, by the way. Prehensions is, is what he means when he says that one experience connects to another to become a, a, something new, a new experience. And we talked about that before. I gave an example. I, I said you might have an experience of... Um, uh, well, you, might, you might start with an experience of time, a positive experience of some event that happened historically, and um, an experience of uh, loss or pain. And you put them all together and you have a new experience that we might call nostalgia. You know, you look back on a good memory and you feel pain as a consequence because you've lost that experience and you can never get it back. 
And you can't have nostalgia until you have all of those other experiences. They come together to form a new one. And this is how, this is how Whitehead thinks that the entire cosmos works. Everything that exists is a composite being made up of other beings. And every one of these beings or organisms I'm talking about are experiences. A whole bunch of, of, of experiences that exist independently, like I said at the beginning. They're all their own things, you know, that they come together to become greater, more complex beings. They're always, they're always joining together again to, be, to become a unity. So it's a process. When he says an, an experience is a process, it's a process of prehension. So that that's the idea of kind of you know linking together one experience with another uh, to become something else. He also talks about ingression, which which is these eternal objects, these forms that attach themselves to the to the experience to make them some some particular actual experience. And also this process he calls concrescence, which is which is moving from a state of potential to a state of actuality where that experience becomes revealed to the experiencer, to the, to the cosmos. Um, that experience is a feeling that is felt by all of this web of experience and resynthesized into another wholeness, into a new novel unity. So when he says an actual entity is a process, he means all of that. It makes me wonder if an, if an experience assuming a form, which we know requires these actual entities, these forms, these essences, does that mean God becoming an experience? Again, potential becoming actual. I don't, I, I don't have a problem. I don't, it doesn't seem like a far leap when I say potential becoming actual. Uh, to compare that to saying God becoming materially manifest you know to me these seem like these seem like synonyms god being embodied in a particular manifestation something like that i'm going to push on whitehead says an actual entity has a bond with each item in the universe this bond is its prehension of that item a positive prehension is the inclusion of that item into the subject's constitution. This is its feeling of that item. Okay, so we know that we know that Whitehead sees the world as made up of experience, and all of those experiences are interconnected because they really make up one thing. So when he says an actual entity has a bond which with each item in the universe, he just means every experience is connected to every other experience that make up the universe. And that bond is its prehensions, which we already talked about. It's this organizing process and the process of connection and, and relationships between experiences that make up this web, this complex web um, of experience uh, that Whitehead just calls reality, you know? So all of these experiences come together to make up, to make up something new and Every time that happens, it's felt. It's an experience. You know, the synthesis of, of new experience coming to join this great, greater complex web of experience. That this is felt and radiates through the entire web. Something like that. This is the, this is the image I get.
That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call givenness and actuality. This, not that. Whitehead says, all actual entities relative to a given actual entity as subject are necessarily felt by that subject. An actual entity as felt is objectified for that subject. Only a selection of eternal objects are felt by a given subject. All right, so there's a bunch to unpack here. Remember when we were talking about prehensions, we're saying you have got these experiences. He calls them actual entities. And they, they join together to become new actual entities, greater composite experiences. What he says is that in this greater composite experience, something in that is, is a subject. Something in that is, well, I mean, the best way I, maybe I could explain this is that you know, and I know, that our bodies are composed of cells. And those cells are, um, you know, even at the level of the organs, the level of the cells, the level of the, of the molecules and atoms, we've got all of these things that make up our physical bodies. And yet, the macro being, you and I, we're a subject. So we, we are conscious of ourselves as a self and as distinct from the world. It's not clear to us that our cells are like that or our organs or the parasites or bacteria or whatever that are all symbiotically existing in this, in this shell. It's not clear that any of them are subjects, but I am, you are. And so what Whitehead says is that when these experiences kind of clump together and unify and so forth, that some piece of that takes the form of a subject and that the subject feels all of these experiences that, that it, compose it. Right? You have suddenly the consciousness gets turned on. You have a subject. And this does make sense to me. And, and Whitehead hasn't put it this way, but I'll tell you what it kind of sounds like to me. It reminds me of something Hegel said. Hegel said, self consciousness has before itself another self consciousness. And what that means is that conscious creatures find ourselves a subject and an object at once. We look at our bodies, we, we understand ourselves as an object, just like all the other people are objects in the world. And yet, we're also a subject. We're also something alive and aware within the object. Right? And I think this is what Whitehead is saying, that when these experiences clump together, these actual entities clump together to become something new, that what you have is self-consciousness has before itself another self-consciousness, just like Hegel said. You have an, an experience coming face-to-face -face with another experience. Consciousness coming face-to-face -face with consciousness. That's how, that's how you have a subject. Because you, you, can, you, you can then know what you are. Because you're facing yourself. You're encountering yourself. You're experiencing yourself. We call that self-consciousness. It seems to me that that may be how experience becomes a subject. And, if, and as soon as it becomes a subject, it has a perspective. And it feels all of the things that make it up, all of these experiences that are within it. The subject, of course, experiences all of the experiences that it has. And so this is what happens, according to Whitehead. An actual entity is felt, or as felt, he says, is objectified for the subject. So these experiences become like objects that we can experience. And then he says something interesting. He says, and I'm going to take a small issue with this. 
He says, only a selection of eternal objects are felt by a given subject. So remember, eternal objects are forms or essences. And I think what he's getting at here is that things have particular form, right? They don't have, they don't have every form. Things have particular form. So if we have experiences and we look around and things seem to have a particular form, um, well, that's the only way that they're experienceable for us. They have to be particular. They can't be everything all at once. So he's, he seems to be saying that even though there are a multiplicity of eternal objects, of potential forms or essences, that they're not all absorbed or felt by a subject. And that's why you have only particular reality and not what Kyle and I sometimes joke about um, when you look out at reality, if you could see beyond your perceptions, what would it look like? And sometimes we say it would look like the Terminator 2 T-1000 liquid metal substance from that movie or the ones and zeros behind the matrix. It's something that can become anything, but in reality, it's like nothing at all, um, at least nothing particular, right? Okay, so circling back to rein myself in. So this particular form um, is what makes something what it is. It's what makes it this and not that. And that's a matter of prehensions. It's, it's a matter of the relationships between experiences. Remember, these actual entities, these experiences, they have to attach themselves to a form. So they have this relationship with these eternal objects that Whitehead calls, uh, or Plato calls forms. And that, that's what makes them this and not that. So there's a unique combination of experience and eternal objects that makes something a unique particular thing. You can't have all the forms at once or it, or it kind of is nothing. It can't have no forms or it, it's nothing. And in either case, it, it can't be experienced. And if it can't be experienced, it's not real exactly. It's not actual. It's potential. And then Whitehead says... The concrescence issues in one concrete feeling, the satisfaction. So what he means here is something that's potential. It, when it's made actual, when it's made real, that's what's called concrescence. And that happens through experience. You have a subject who experiences something, has the feeling of that experience, and that is the satisfaction. That is the goal. It is the point. It is the purpose of existence for experience to happen. So concrescence is the process that Whitehead talks about in, in his process philosophy. It's the process being actualized. It's the feeling or experience by the subject to its new novel form or to the synthesis of this new thing that it's become. And it impacts all of the experiences that make it up. Remember, it has a every experience, uh, Whitehead said, has a position in this web of experience, but its impact radiates through the entire thing. All right, then he says, the notion of givenness refers to a decision whereby what is given is separated off from what is not given. All right, so this is a weird way of saying something simple. Givenness means something, it means particularity, right? You know, if something is... A, Something is the way it is. It's given in a particular way. Um, that's all he means. You know, something something particular, a specific thing. He said that refers to decision. 
whereby what is given is separated from what is not given. And then he says, this givenness in things implies some limitation. The word decision is used in its root sense of cutting off. The ontological principle declares that every decision is referable to one or more actual entity. Okay, so what in the same hell does he mean by that? So this is starting to get good. He's using this word decision to mean cutting off or separating from. Just like I was describing um, Bernardo Castrop's idea of dissociation. It's the same thing, like we're building up walls or barriers in between this infinite thing. Bernardo calls that dissociation. Whitehead calls it decision. Um, I, I, I see the word decision and I think of incision because right? he, he's talking about cutting it off from the wholeness, separating it out. That's what he means by decision. And so decision is what prov- is what provides givenness, particularity. Something has to be separated off from this uh, unity of experience in order to be a particular experience. And so this is all he's saying here. He's saying decision implies limitation. So you're going to take this maybe infinite experience that uh, that Whitehead uh, believes is reality in total, and in there's decisions. There's these these internal you know chopping up going on inside of it that allows for um, this eternal infinite thing to be finite and experienceable. If that makes sense. And then he says. The ontological principle declares that every decision is referable to one or more actual entity. So how this cutting up or this division in in this wholeness of experience works is exactly what he was describing earlier when he said every experience connects with every other experience to create these, you know, composite complex beings. That their composition of these other unique individual freestanding experiences are the decision, right? Are these these boundaries within the greater whole that allow it to be experienceable within itself? I know that may be difficult conceptually, but because everything that exists is made up of a web of other experiences all tied together in, in certain ways, and because they're all individual, unique, existing things all by themselves, we see clearly defined composite building blocks of this greater experience. And because they're like that, because they're clearly defined freestanding things that are joined together, that provides the, the, the division or limitation within this infinite thing that we call experience that allows it to actually be experienceable, that allows it to be known to itself. You know, God experiencing itself, the cosmos experiencing itself. This happens, this can happen, because what it's, what it's made of are other experiences. Just like looking in a mirror, you look, look at another experience, that's exactly the thing you are. You know what you are, simply by opening up your eyes and having an experience. All right, so then I'll try to put this in my own words. When he says that an actual entity arises from decisions and provides decisions for other actual entities which supersede it. Okay, excuse me, I, uh, I skipped one here. The ontological principle asserts the relativity of decisions constitutes the very meaning of actuality. Okay, so this is good. So, okay, so imagine you have this um, infinite 
experience made up of all of this web of, of individual experiences. And every connection, like, like if I'm going back to this brain analogy, every connection between one neuron and another, or one neuron and a set of other neurons, or one set of neurons with a bunch of other sets of neurons, every connection between them is unique. And create, and, and create unique possibilities. Um, they also can join together selectively or randomly, it's hard to really tell how it happens, um, to create unique experiences within itself. So for instance, I might be one neuron connected to a series of others, even though I'm in a web of billions of neurons. The connection between this one and this set of neurons over here is one specific experience. It's one specific reality. It exists nested within this greater reality, and yet it's still you know, an independent, unique experience um, nested within this wholeness. And it's just one possibility out of infinite amounts of possible connections, infinite amounts of possible experiences, something like that. And I'm just imagining like one of those scans, those brain scans, where you see different parts light up. And you can imagine every different combination of shapes and patterns of colors lighting up in different areas and different combinations in, in a neural network. It's something like this that he's describing. And every unique relationship in this web is something unique and specific that contributes to the complexity of reality that we see all around us. If that makes any sense. So he says, an actual entity arises from decisions and provides decisions for other actual entities with, which supersede it. So again, every experience creates a new possibility for new connections and new um, patterns, you know, in that network. All right, so then my, my take on this is that an actual entity is experienced um, by joining with other actual entities and constituting a unified being, right? Its existence is a separation from its prior being, you know, from what it was before. I used to be a standalone experience. Now I've joined together to become this larger thing. So I'm separated from what I used to be by what I am now. Something like that. Um, and is the potential for objectification by another uh, actual entity. So as soon as a new thing is formed, it becomes a new possibility that can be connected to other possibilities. So you just have this infinite churning out of possible patterns and possible experiences within this great web. And then the, this idea of decision or separating off, that it's clearly, it's clearly an internal limitation. It's a separation within the wholeness into subject and object. And I think it's the same thing that Bernardo talks about when he talks about dissociation. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this idea of separation as like the critical component to reality that's something that we see in our religious stories. And it's kind of a strange like coincidence, but maybe it's not a coincidence at all. If you just think about the biblical story, and it has deeper roots in, in ancient Samaria, and, and it's true there as well, but in the biblical story, the heavens are separated, right? The heavens and earth are separated. The waters and the land are separated. Everything is separated in the, in the creation stories. And this is exactly what 
both Bernardo Castrop and Whitehead are talking about when they say that there are decisions or dissociations that happen within the unity, within the infinite unity. And that specifically is what's responsible for experience and reality. All right. Whitehead says, Just as potentiality for process is the meaning of entity, decision is the meaning imported by the word actual into the phrase actual entity. Okay, so... So things like eternal objects and actual entities, um, they're both going to fall into this category of entity. It's just things that exist. You know, they're, they're entities. And that he calls a potentiality for process. Now, process is what reality is. It's what this organism is. That, that, that's the way Whitehead sees reality, is this interconnected organism, this living thing that's all interconnected. So an entity is the potential for that to happen. And he says, decision, this is that separation we're talking about, is the meaning imported from the, from the word actual into the, phrase, <clears throat> into the phrase actual entity. So an entity becomes actual. That's potential becoming actual, just like we were talking about earlier. He says, actuality is the decision amid potentiality. Actuality is separated off from potentiality. It's divided up or, or uh, limited in some way from the infinite thing that it that it rests in. So it's like internal separation of what is eternal into something finite, from potential into actual. And he says an actual entity is a decision conditioning the creativity which transcends that actuality. Now this is interesting and super important, and I something that I intuitively agree with. Okay, so when he says an actual entity is a decision, uh, he's just talking about one of those little um, kind of a distinct, defined components of reality. That it conditions the creativity that transcends actuality. So what he means by that is, right, when, when, when a, a new experience emerges and gets synthesized into the web of experience, into the, into the, into the unity, um, that, that's a process that's sort of never-ending. There's always you know, new experiences being generated, new realities being generated and reincorporated and resynthesized into reality. And um, that, that's not random, is what Whitehead is saying. He's saying that that creativity, that thing that he calls it the creative advance of the universe, it's something that pushes constant you know, novelty and constant generation um, and constant transformation. And that's, what, that's how we experience the world. Whatever that is, that force that pushes that along, it's not random. It's conditioned by everything that came before it. So, so the potential for novelty, for something new to, to emerge in the world, a new experience, right? It's, it's restricted or influenced based upon the actual entities that have come before. So novelty is an inev inevitability, but it's not random potential, it's conditioned potential. It's like the past directs the possibilities of the future. The actual directs the potential. And I think that's critical. So remember, in this model, the actual is the world, and potential is God. And what I just said is the actual directs the potential, the actual conditions the potential. 
What does that mean? It's one thing to say that God creates or directs the actual. It's another to say that the actual directs the potential. That creation impacts or limits what God can be, what potential can be, what it, what it can become. And so you have a process between actual and potential, between God and reality, let's say. That isn't a one-way street. It's not God creating the cosmos and sitting back in his eternal glory. It's God creating the cosmos and the cosmos reacting back upon God. And it's an experience back and forth of the only thing that exists, by the way. And I have no problem calling that God. God's experience of God. God is subject, God is object. Something like that. And it's that process back and forth. And Whitehead sees it as I see it. And I've talked about this before when I, when I talk about the being generator, kind of a thought experiment. But the idea that God is transformed or changed by its creation, right? It, it goes back and forth constantly, a process of transformation. We don't usually think about God like that. We think about God as the most high, as, as you know, incapable of transformation, as permanent and unchanging. And that is not the whitehead model. I don't think that's the platonic model. And I don't think that's the mystical model. You know, Jung, Jung will be the first to tell you it's transformation which is fundamental. And I think that's what Whitehead means when he says process. When he talks about process, he's talking about this back and forth process of transformation. And that brings me to my next section, which I'm going to call Platonic Whiteheadian. It starts like this. I use the phrase eternal object for platonic form. Any entity who does not involve reference to any actual entities of the temporal world is called an eternal object. An eternal object is always a potentiality for actual entities, but in itself is neutral as to its ingression in any particular actual entity. All right, so another strange thing about actual entities is that Whitehead seems to presume that actual entities don't have a will of their own, where... Um, experiences all seem to, and they require eternal objects to be experienced, but eternal objects are kind of neutral in the process. So it's not really clear how they're selected, at least not yet, or or even why he presumes that there are many of them. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later. So let's start, let's start again here. He says, he, when he talks about eternal objects, he means platonic forms. And then he says, any entity, now remember, that's just a potential for experience. So any potential for experience who does not involve reference to any actual experience is called an eternal object. That's, that's it. And then he says, an eternal object is always a potential for an actual entity. And it's not clear to me, is he saying that eternal objects give rise to actual entities? Is that what he means when he says an eternal object is a potential for an actual entity? Because it if so, he's never made that clear before. Or do they merely contribute to their definiteness? Because that he does say. 
He says eternal objects, they're the form that the experience take. So they contribute to them being a particular form, a particular experience. Is it possible that eternal objects don't exist in God, but that they are God? That's, that's my question. Because Whitehead says that eternal objects or forms exist in the primordial nature of God, whatever that means. My question is, is there a difference between eternal objects and the place where they exist? We're calling that God. I don't even know what that means in, the con- in this context. A place. A place that exists outside of time and yet, and yet impacts all the things in it. I don't know if place is the right, right word. So it may be that God is the only, the only object of experience, the only eternal object, undifferentiated and able to become any particular experience. Can we see it that way? Might it be that experience moving through this eternal object of experience, like the spirit that moves across the face of the waters in the first chapter of Genesis, might it be that that actualizes itself in dynamic and transforming ways? This is still process, which is the key to to Whitehead's model. Okay, Whitehead says, the primary data... Okay, so this is good. Now we're going to get some uh, idea of what the data is that these actual entities are experiencing. He says, the primary data and concrescent feelings synthesize in the final unity of one actual entity. The actual entity terminates its becoming in one feeling involving a bond with every other item in the universe. This is the satisfaction of the actual entity. This is the process whereby the actual entity arises from its data. Okay, all right, so there's something here. Let's, let's, let's take a look. So when he says the primary data, it's clear in the context that what he means by this are eternal objects and also any pre-existing actual entities. That's the data. Like, so for instance, you know we talked about an actual entity joining together with another actual entity to become a, a new thing. So two experiences come together, they become a third, a, a third experience, something new. That those experiences within become kind of objects to the subject. Uh, this is all getting muddy, but you know what I mean. Two experiences come together, and they, and they, in the process of doing that, they have this, they create this subject-object di- dynamic. One of the experiences, um, or maybe the combination of, of, of the two, becomes like the perspective of a subject. And it's made up of these objects, okay? So that's the way the subject now sees itself, as made up of objects. Um, and, and so those objects can be experienced, obviously, and that's the data of experience. So it's almost like Whitehead is saying that the data that these actual entities embody it are the experience of itself, the things that make it up, the experiences that make it up. And that's some combination of um, other experiences and these eternal objects, these forms. So you might also say, um, it, rather than, you know, from my perspective, rather than calling them eternal objects or forms, you might just call them God. 
So the primary data is God, and it may be in my in, in my mind, it may be that um, God in that context is, is potentiality. It's not, you know, it's it's not anything particular. It's that stem cell example. It can become anything. So that's an interesting way of thinking about it, because data seems to be always something specific. So what what would data be if it could become anything specific? And it, there's something from quantum mechanics that comes to my mind. It's um, it's a quibit. Uh, I don't know if anybody's heard of this before, but in computer science, you've got bits, right? And they're the simplest form of data, ones and zeros, right? That's what a bit is, ones and zeros. A quibit in quantum computing is is actually three things altogether interchangeable. It's one, zero, and one and zero. So you can imagine a, um, a bit is either a, a static one or a zero. A quibit is like something that's co- constantly changing between ones, one and zero. It's one, it's zero, it's both, it's neither, all the time. That's what it is. That's kind of how I imagine data in this context. It's ones and zeros and ones and zeros all at once, and, ne- and none of them at all, all at once, all the time. It can be a one when it needs to be a one. It can be a zero when it needs to be a zero. It can be both or neither when, when it's called a four. But in reality, it's none of those things. It's just potential, something like that. So in any case, that data gets... Um, it's made real, and by that it, he means made experienceable. And so we, we have an experience of that. that. That experience is a feeling, and that feeling is what he calls the satisfaction. That's the purpose of existence. He says the actual entity terminates its becoming. So, again, an actual entity is a standalone thing. If it joins together with, other, with another experience, it becomes a third thing, something new. Whitehead says it terminates what it was or whatever it was doing before. It terminates its becoming to become something new. And that feels like something to the, to the aggregate entity. It feels like something to the subject that, that's been created by this unity of experience. And he said that is the process whereby an actual entity arises from its data. An experience arises from its data. What he's saying is actual entities are experienced into being. They're experienced into actuality. So it's, it's being experienced that makes something actual, that, that takes it from potential into actual. It's not becoming materially real. Like a lot of times people think about th- things that are real as being tangible, being made of matter, being physical, and you can reach out and touch and interact with it. Whitehead says no. That's not what it means to become actual. What it means to become actual is not to become materially manifest. It's to become an experience. That's interesting. Then he says, an actual entity is both a subject and a superject, which is the atomic creature. Okay, so let's let's make that clear. An actual entity, this is an experience, remember, it's both a subject, remember, that's an experiencer, and a superject, which is the atomic creature. That, that, you might say that's the object of experience. So an actual entity is both the experiencer, 
and the object of its experience. Right? That's like looking at God as creation and creator at once. To Whitehead, an actual entity is the experiencer and the object of experience at once. Self-contained. Isn't that interesting? He says, it has become a being and it belongs to the nature of every being that it is a potential for every becoming. So an experience is both the experiencer and the object of experience together. And anytime you have something like that, anytime you have an, you have an actual entity, it's kind of the raw material for some new experience. It's always continuing and continuing and continuing. Everything new that's made is raw material for something for more newness and even more newness because the complexity just compounds on itself. You know, just think about the number of connections that you have between three objects. You can draw lines between them. You know, maybe a triangle between these three objects. Imagine those objects are all experiences. And every time you add a new experience, every time you add a new dot, you have exponentially more possibilities for connections between them. You know? That's what he means. And then he says... The process of becoming is dipolar by the determinateness of the actual world and by its prehensions of the indeterminateness of eternal objects. Okay. So this is difficult, difficult to, uh, to explain. But I've done it before, so maybe it won't be, won't be new to your ears. When he says the process of becoming is dipolar, he means that there's two opposite things happening at once. He says you have the determinateness of the actual world. You know, that's just the particular, you know, actuality, the things that exist. They're, they're finite and limited and, uh, you know, distinct. But you also have participating in all those things, the indeterminateness of eternal objects. Right? Those are those essences that we can't pin down. You know, what is beauty? What's the essence of a dog? It's hard to tell in words exactly what that is. In fact, it's impossible so you've got something actual, definite, and you have something potential and ethereal and hard to pin down, and they're both coming together in order for reality to exist. And so what you see there is what I've called many times a generative union of opposites. You've got the actual and the potential. You've got the determinateness and the indeterminateness, right? You've got opposites that come together. And you see that in all of the creation stories from, from our religious history. You see it in the bi biblical story. You see it in the Sumerian story. Tiamat and Apsu, you know, the salt water and the fresh water, the chaos and the order, opposites coming together. And in those religious stories, they were together in the beginning. One thing, the Ouroboros. And their union was generative. It created all these things within and according to the and according to the religious stories, they had to be separated from each other. Tiamat and Apsu, the heavens from the earth, they had to be separated from each other in order to create the space where all of those things that were created within can now exist. They have to be separated from each other. There has to be decision, dissociation, to use the words we've talked about today. And you see exactly this talked about in 
mythological language in our religious stories. A generative union of opposites. Man, so good. All right, he says, everything must be somewhere. And somewhere means some actual entity. Accordingly, the general potential of the universe must be somewhere. This somewhere is the non-temporal actual entity, the primordial mind of God. Okay, all right. So this is where we're going to start to get into what Whitehead means by God, because it's really perplexing to me. Okay, remember earlier he said that, that things don't come from nothing. So everything that exists must come from something that exists. Now he's saying that everything must be somewhere, and that's true as well. Somewhere means some actual entity. And remember, if, if an experience is an actual entity, and it comes together with a bunch of other actual entities to create something new, um, you can point to one of those actual entities that make up this new object and say it's there within that actual entity and you can point to it that's what he's saying somewhere when we we talk about somewhere we think about space and time we think about the expanse of the cosmos you know he's saying what that means is actually like a something nested within something that already exists so where something exists is always in something else that exists it reminds me of those uh Russian dolls, you know, you open up the Russian doll and there's just a smaller version of it and you open up the top of it, it's a smaller version of it, whatever those things are called. It's something like that, right? Everything that exists is within something that exists. It's like that, nested in this fractal manner within itself. And then he asks another question. He says, if everything exists like that, how about the general potential of the universe? It's one thing to say you start with one actual entity and you start building more actual entities onto that and creating something new. But what about that first one? It didn't come from an experience that happened first. There must have been a first experience, don't you think? What about that one? Where did it come from? And Whitehead says, the general potentiality of the universe must be somewhere. That somewhere is the non-temporal actual entity, the primordial mind of God. Okay. Okay. So now we have the starting point, the fundamental place where everything exists, the actual entity that started them all. And he calls that the mind of God, the primordial mind of God, or the primordial nature of God. He uses that, that phrase later. But this, I think, is more to the point, the mind of God. So this is how you can start to see... Whitehead sounding like an idealist. I can go back to my own mystical experience and remember one of the things that I said when I was in a religious ecstasy is that everything is God's dream. And that's that's what I mean. Whitehead says, the general potentiality for the universe is in the primordial mind of God. Everything is in the mind of God. Everything is God's dream. Everything are, everything are concepts in the mind of God. Something like that. So maybe this is where that data comes from. That you know, but according to Whitehead, even God is an actual entity. So it's just the thing that that's nested at the highest level. It's the aggregate being, the organism in aggregate, something like that. 
I don't want you to think that that means there are limits, by the way. God is eternal. And um, you, if you'd imagine God as an organism, you can kind of think of your the, the shape of your body and you think to yourself, well, I'm only six feet tall, so I start there and I end there. And, you know, you can see the outline of my of my uh, body and it's all contained by my skin. And so I, I'm a very finite, discrete thing, just like every organism is. Um, and this is true even of the mind of God, I think. But it's not bound by time. This is before time. This is outside of time. And it's still eternal. And I think it's important to talk about this because how it's still eternal. If you have, let's say, an outer um, boundary, an outer border of a being, of a creature, it's, it's made up of experiences, right? And they're constantly being churned out from within this creature, and so what I would like to what I would like to do is maybe bring your mind to this idea of like the expansion of the universe. People people describe this like all of the stars and planets and stuff would be like um, raisins and a loaf of raisin bread, and when it bakes in the oven, the loaf expands all together, like it expands from all sides at once. So this is kind of what I'm imagining. I'm imagining all of these new experiences being churned up inside this web, inside this mind of God. And so what happens is more and more and more and more is constantly being churned out inside of this thing. So the mind of God just keeps expanding from within. That's how it's infinite in my mind. It still has boundaries in terms of um, you know, being an organism. You can still imagine that that might be the case, but it's... It's still infinite, even though it has boundaries. And that's another paradox. It's another union of opposites. How can it be eternal and bounded at once? And so anytime you bump into a paradox like that, I think you're putting your finger on the pulse of something important. But it's really difficult to say what that might be. All right. Uh, We're getting close now. So Whitehead says... Non-entity is nothingness. And by that, he just means everything exists within an entity. Everything exists within the mind of God and all of the um, actual entities uh, therein, um, you know, exist within one another. So mind is an entity to Whitehead and nothing exists outside of entity. It's still not clear where... It's still not clear to me if the potential that we're talking about is in the mind of God or if it is the mind of God. And I think that's an extremely important distinction. And it's not clear to me what Whitehead thinks on that, but I'll, I'll push on. He says, There always remains the final reaction of the self-creative unity of the universe. This final reaction completes the self-creative act. So this is just another talk about feeling and satisfaction that we've been talking about. When something new is, some new experience emerges in this web of experience and it gets absorbed into the whole web of experience and it radiates throughout the whole web because remember, it's, it's felt throughout the entire thing, that that experience is satisfaction. That's, that's experience, but I'm going to say, I like to say God. That's God experiencing itself anew. And that's that feeling, that qualia that we're talking about, that, that, unexplainable part of reality that's the goal that's that's the goal of existence god's satisfaction its experience of itself and that brings me to the next section which i'm going to call paradox whitehead says 
The antithetical terms universals and particulars are the usual words employed to denote eternal objects and actual entities. So that makes it clear, uh, more clear, that we're talking about opposites when we're talking about eternal objects and actual entities. He says we might just call them universals and particulars. Then he says the ontological principle and the doctrine of relativity blur the distinction between what is universal and what is particular. All right, so this is why I'm calling this one paradox. You know that, you know, if we go back to our sort of symbolic understanding uh, of this sort of thing, and go back to our religious stories of the Ouroboros, and we're talking about the generative union of opposites, that's what we have here, the universals and particulars, the potential and the actual, the eternal objects and the actual entities. But he says that the ontological principle, which is really key to his whole philosophy, kind of blurs the lines between that. All right, now he'll, he'll explain a little bit more. He says, an actual entity cannot be described by universals because other actual entities enter into it. Thus, every so-called universal is particular in the sense of being diverse from everything else. And every so-called particular is universal in the sense of entering into the constitutions of other actual entities. This realization led to the collapse of Descartes' many substances into Spinoza's one substance and Leibniz's monads. Okay, so we talked about Spinoza in the past. Um, Leibniz is a mathematician that was a rival of Newton, but a brilliant man and somebody who also believed along the lines of Spinoza that the most fundamental truth of reality is that everything is one. This is what Spinoza believed. This is what Leibniz believed. And Leibniz was one of the and Spinoza, for that matter, two of the smartest human beings that ever lived. Uh, Leibniz was a mathematical genius. All right, so what are we saying here? We're trying to talk about how these opposites, um, eternal objects and actual entities, how the line between them is blurred, and how significant, let's say, that is. All right, he says, an actual entity cannot be described by universals. And, and so we know that universals are those forms, right, those essences, um, but we can't describe, it's like, um, it's like the problem I had earlier when I said you have 50 dogs and you know the essence of a dog, you can kind of see intuitively what, that there is something common between them, a thread that passes through all these animals that's similar, but try to put it into words. There's always going to be some exception, you know? There's always going to be some exception. It's like this. There's a experiment like this that's that's talked about from time to time, where people will say, "What's the essence of a table?" Like, go ahead, try. What's the essence of a table? Well, it's a flat surface with four legs. Okay. Um, what about a or, or excuse me? I think it was I think it was a chair. Was it supposed to be a chair? So it's a chair. It's a it's a flat surface with four legs that you, that you can sit on. Okay. Well, what about a beanbag chair? See what I mean? So you can always come up with, um, you can always come up with uh, specific things that contradict the rule, and that's why it becomes very, very difficult or impossible. In fact, any essence is, is basically impossible to to put into words, and so that's what he's pointing to. It's like you can't describe an actual entity by universals, even though it's the universal, it's the eternal object, the form that makes it a particular entity. But I can't describe what that is. 
He also says that one experience is made up of others. So I can't, even if I could describe what the eternal object is, the form is, the essence is, even if I could, that's not only what's going on. There's also other experiences that are united with this experience that make it more than just the eternal object. So there's a blurring line here. And then he said, um, thus every so-called universal is particular in the sense of being diverse from everything else. Okay, so a universal, these are these eternal objects. They exist outside of time. They're potential. They're nothing like everything else. All these eternal objects, or excuse me, all these um, actual entities that exist, they're particular things that exist in the temporal world. They're nothing like eternal objects. They're opposites. So an eternal object is particular. It's the thing that is particularly unlike everything else. And so he said every so-called particular, those are the actual entities, they're actually universal in the sense that they enter into all other actual entities. You can't have an experience without, without it being composed of other experiences. And that makes, that makes experience, these actual entities, um, it makes them uh, universal, just like these eternal objects are supposed to be. So, again, you've, get, you've got this interesting paradox here where they're clearly opposites that come into union, and yet we can't even describe what makes them universal in particular. They kind of play both roles. And this is another reason why I wonder why Whitehead formulated this idea of eternal objects and actual entities as separate things to begin with. It goes against my intuitions, and so that's the beef that I want to take with this, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean specifically in just a minute. All right, so we have the, the next section to, to discuss. It's called Not Substance But Mind. So just to recap that last sentence from the prior, this realization led to the collapse of Descartes' many substances into Spinoza's one substance. So Descartes believed that the world was made up of many substances, and uh, in the highest level, those substances were mind and matter. And they break down into lots of other subcategories. But Spinoza said, no, there is no, there is no reason to imagine a, a distinction between mind and matter. You're just, you're just making that up. You're adding to, to something that you need not. And then we go back to Occam's razor, which says that the simplest solution is very often the correct one. And we see simplicity and elegance in mathematics and in physics. So that's what we're looking for. And many substances is unnecessary. It's more cumbersome. It's more complex than one substance. So that brings me to not substance but mind. Okay. He says, he starts with a, a bit from, uh, from Hume. He says, Hume agrees that mind is a process of concrescence arising from primary data. So I'm sure Hume didn't use those exact words, but he's using his own to say that Hume agreed with him that mind is the process of concrescence from primary data. That means from that, that mind is the process of potential becoming actual. So mind is the actualization or the experience of the, the data. Now, I don't know, again, what that data is. If mind is this primordial actual entity, then you might say mind is all that exists. So whatever data it is, um, 
seem to seems to me to be I don't know how you separate that from mind. Mind and data. I don't know I don't know how you make them separate things and he's saying that mind arises from data. So this is strange to me. But he goes on. He says the, for the philosophy of organism, the primary data are always eternal, excuse me, are always actual entities absorbed into feeling in virtue of certain universals shared alike by the objectified actuality and the experienced subject. All right, so we know that these actual entities have form, um, that they have these universals sort of built in, and it's sharing these forms in common. It seems to be what he's saying is that sharing these forms in common is what allows them to be absorbed into one another um, and experienced. Now, one way of saying that, if you go back to what I said earlier, is that if we, if we think that eternal objects are, or potentiality, if we just call that God, then what we... Then what we how we would reword this is to say that that every experience is able to be absorbed by others because what they share in common, this universal they share in common, what that means is that it means God, that, that they're both God and they share that in common. And that's what allows them to merge into each other because they aren't different things. They're exactly the same thing. Something like that. Then he says, an actual entity's ideas of things are its feelings. Its ideas express how other things are components in its own constitution. Okay, so this is interesting. We talked about these feelings when we talked about um, it, these actual entities becoming objects for other actual entities, and that just has to do with them coming together to form a, a greater being. That when they when they become you know, subject and object, right? They, they're come together, you got multiple experiences coming together, they have this perspective of being a subject, then all of the other things that make them up become objects, and it feels those objects. And here what Whitehead is saying is that those feelings are its ideas of things. That Again, that, that has to do with mind. So actual entities seem to have a mind or they seem to share a mind and that basic actual entity that engulfs all of them Whitehead already told us is the mind of God so the the mind that's shared between this entire web of experience that's interconnected with each other the thing that gives them all mind is the actual entity that they share in common the mind of God so everything that exists that has, that has a subject, that has a mind, or, or that experiences its, its mind. What it's experiencing is the mind of God. And I think that's beautiful. I think that resonates with my mystic intuition. Uh, one of the things I said in mystic experience was that um, the consciousness that I am is in everything that exists, all the matter and energy in, in the cosmos. And I think that's saying the same thing. You know, the fact that I experience myself to have a mind is what connects me to everything else that experiences itself to have a mind. We do not have separate minds. We participate in the same mind, the primordial mind of God, according to Whitehead. And I think that, I don't know if I would, ever would have formulated it that way, but I don't disagree with that. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. And I don't think it's difficult for us to imagine ideas becoming a part of our constitution because 
that's what he says here. He says that an actual entity's ideas of things are its feelings. And those ideas express um, how other things are components in your own constitution. So you've got, let's just talk about political ideas or philosophical ideas that you've never encountered before. Um, and you maybe it's this one. Maybe it's this idea of process in Alfred North Whitehead. And you hear me talk about it, and some of it makes sense, and it resonates. And you absorb that into yourself. So that's a really commonplace thing. I don't think there's any argument there that we experience ideas and we take them into ourselves. We incorporate them into the thing that we are. And I think we can we can see that very easily by any time we learn something new, a new concept, a new idea, and then whatever our reactions are to that, you know, because those are feelings. Sometimes we encounter an idea and we, we think to ourselves, that's fantastic, you know, I'm going to adopt that right away. Other times you encounter an idea and you go, bullshit, you know, that, that, doesn't, that, that doesn't seem right at all. Either way, you've got an idea incorporated into your mind, right? Something new that wasn't there before that now exists in your mind as a part of, a part of this complex of ideas that you call yourself. And you have feelings about it. And having a feeling about it is evidence, according to Whitehead, of this absorbing it into yourself, right? You've had the experience because you've had the feeling. Having the feeling makes it real. You know? It's like if you... If you encountered an idea but you weren't able to absorb it into yourself and it didn't evoke any feeling, then it doesn't affect you. It doesn't impact the system. It doesn't become a part of you. And so it stays in potential. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in actuality. And so it's hard to say how it exists. But as soon as you have the feeling of it, you have the experience of it, see, that's what makes it real, according to Whitehead. You know, it's interesting. It becomes a part of an actual experience, and that's what makes it real. It has nothing to do with being physically real. It has nothing to do with physics or matter at all. Something is real when it is experienced. Another debate there is like, people... people We'll debate that dreams or psychedelic experiences aren't real. People like Joe Rogan have said many times, if you have an experience of it, and that experience has an impact on you, how can you say it's not real? And like, in what way can you say it's not real? And I think this is exactly what Whitehead means. Okay, he goes on, he says, I have adopted the term prehension to express the activity whereby an actual entity affects its own concretion of other things. This is just an explanation of what he means by prehension. We've talked about that already, but the idea is that an actual entity is it's active in determining what experience it integrates into itself. Um, and that, Because that, that defines it as a subject, you know, with will and intention. So there's some role that the experience plays. We can't forget the experience is not just a, con a constitutive element of a, of a greater being. It's also a standalone thing that exists on its own, just like we talked about with Jung's archetypes. These personalities that exist within us, they exist on their own, kind of stand alone with their own will and intentions. All right, he says... The prehension of one actual entity by another is the object objectification of the former entity as data for the latter. 
All right, so we've covered that. We did ask the question what data is, but now we do seem to know that at least it is um, the actual entities and the eternal objects that are available to the subject that get absorbed into that subject and become a part of that feeling, that satisfaction that we talk about being the um, kind of the goal of existence. So it seems to me that data is not separate from mind. Um, mind either is data or it generates data. But it's also that thing that experienced the data. It's the thing the data is for. So mind is the thing that makes experience possible. Experience isn't possible without an object of experience, without this data. So the data seems to be associated closely with mind. Either it's the same thing as mind, or it's generated by mind, as far as I can tell, something like that. And then Whitehead says, Mind is a unity of the prehensions of ideas into one concrete thing. So mind is a unity of all ideas, since mind is where ideas exist. But it's also that which generates ideas. And I think we see more paradox here. All right, then he's going to switch gears to John Locke. He says, Locke writes, The mind furnished with a great number of ideas are presumed to belong to one thing, united in one subject. Not imagining how ideas can subsist by themselves, we suppose some substratum wherein they subsist, which we call substance. Okay, so this is interesting. So John Locke just basically says, look, we've got all these ideas, and we assume that all of those ideas belong to one subject. Right? That's how we experience ourselves. All of the ideas that exist, exist within one thing we call ourselves. And we assume that because we can't imagine how they could exist elsewhere. We can't imagine how ideas could exist free-floating outside of an organism, or outside of a body, or outside of a mind. It's very difficult for us. So John Locke says, that's why we suppose there must be something called substance. There must be something physically real that things are made from. And that may actually be that may actually be untrue. Uh, Whitehead goes on. He says, The philosophy of organism abolishes the detached mind. Mental activity is one of the modes of feeling belonging to all actual entities. So this is basically goes back to what he said before. That the primordial mind of God is this actual entity that all of the other actual entities exist within. And that's what gives the capacity to think, mental activity as he calls it, to all of the other actual entities that exist in it. So even mind is an experience, an actual entity, to Whitehead. And if that's true, it must be the primordial mind, you know, the mind of God, which is shared among all connected experiences, all of the actual entities within it. It is not detached, but belongs to an organism, which places Whitehead's mind in the position of deity, as far as I'm concerned, the primordial mind of God, as Whitehead calls it, or the primordial nature of God. He says, All actual things are subjects, each prehending the universe from which it arises. The creative action is the universe always becoming one in a particular unity of self-experience and thereby adding to the multiplicity which is the universe. 
This insistent concrescence into unity is the ultimate self-identity of each entity. All right, so there's some good stuff here. It's buried a little bit, so let me dig it out for you. He says, all actual, all actual things are subjects. Everything has a mind. Right? We know that because everything, all the experiences that exist, exist within the primordial mind of God, and, that's, and, and, and participate in the mind of God. That's why they all have minds. He says, the creative action is the universe always becoming one in a particular unity of self-experience. I think that last bit is the telling bit. So the creative action of the universe is always becoming one. That means these new experiences, these novel new experiences exist, and they immediately get incorporated into this one thing, this one web of experience. And that's the concrescence. That's what makes these potential things real by being experienced, being integrated into this web of experience. But he calls that a particular unity of self-experience. And I think that is absolutely key because he's giving it away here. He's saying that what's being experienced is all the same thing. And the experiencer, the subjects at all the different levels that exist, they are the same thing. It's self-experience that's going on here. And the question is, whose self? What self? What are we talking about here? We're talking about the mind of God, right? So, and stated differently, what Whitehead is saying is that reality, experience, is God's experience of itself, period. That's what experience is, period. And that unique experience, that constant generation of new self-experience, he says that's what creates the multiplicity of the universe. All the different forms and manifestations of things that you see and experience in the world. So he, And then he says, the insistent concrescence into unity is the ultimate self-identity of each entity. Meaning that every actual entity, every experience, has the same identity. Right? Not only that, every experience is the same. It's self-experience. What does he mean here? Each experience, each actual entity has the same identity. They're all one. They're all expressions of potential of the mind of God. All experience is self-experience. And they, and they all share one identity. That leads me to my last bit here, which is called, What is Power? It's going to be more John Locke to wrap it, wrap it up for the day. He says, Locke introduces his doctrine of power as follows. So here's, here's a quote from Locke. The mind, being every day informed of the alteration of those simple ideas it observes in things, taking notice how one ceases to be and another begins, and observing a constant change of its ideas sometimes by the impression of outward objects, and sometimes by its own choice, considers the possibility of having its ideas changed and the possibility of making that change. And so comes the idea we call power. All right, so what does he mean by this? He said that your experience, everybody's experience, is an experience of things constantly changing. And 
you might say, he, he calls them ideas. I called them things, but we're really talking about one and the same thing. Remember, if everything exists in the mind of God, then things are ideas. There is no difference. And to Whitehead, that's the case. Um, things, ideas, organisms, they're all the same. They're synonyms, you know? So he says you, well, I'll just tell you, like right now it's fall. I go outside, I see the same tree in my front yard every day. A couple of months ago, it was brilliantly green and beautiful. Now it's withered and, and gray and the leaves are all gone. And everything is like that. Everything you experience is always changing. So you can imagine that those are ideas, right? My idea of the tree in the front yard is changing. You see what I mean? So it's like, first you notice that, that everything is constantly changing. The second thing you notice is that sometimes the change um, is, is sort of imposed on you. And he says that's by impressions of the, of the outward objects. That, that's what I just described. I walk outside and I see the tree doesn't look like it did yesterday. And so that change is forced on me. So it's kind of like passive. That's, that's more of a passive thing. But then he also says sometimes we see that change by our own choice. So that might mean changing my state of mind. Like I, I may say to myself, I know I have to continue working this job and I hate this job for blah, blah, blah reasons, but I'm just going to change my perspective. I'm going to say, you know, I'm sacrificing for my family. I'm going to put a different spin on this to make the sacrifice and the, and the, you know, boredom and the treasury. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, change how I see that to make it more palatable for me. So I have some, so it seems noble and it seems like a worthy cause. And I can make that change all on my own, just conceptually. Or I could go outside to look at that same tree and I could chop it down, right? Then the change I'm seeing is just like what I was describing with my kind of mental frame of uh, reference change. I physically changed it myself. Right? So that's the second bit. He's saying, you notice that the world is always changing. Then you notice sometimes those changes happen without your influence, and sometimes you, you can influence them yourself. Thus, he says, comes the idea we call power, that I have the ability to make a change myself, that I can influence the constant transformation that's happening around me, that I can take control over that to some degree. He says, fire has the power to melt gold. That's like an active type of change. And gold has the power to be melted. Right? It's a passive kind of change. He says, power is in reference to the change of perceivable ideas. Isn't that interesting? The power to change ideas. And he says, Locke's doctrine of power is reproduced in the philosophy of organism by objectification. The objectified um, actual entity is exerting power. Okay. So this is how he's talking about the experiences that make up this greater reality, influence the potential of that greater reality. Right? It's pretty interesting. So he's borrowing this idea of power from John Locke, and he sees it in the constitution of of organisms as a composite of different experiences.
and how they those experiences impact the greater reality or the potential of what of what newness might might be possible going forward that they're conditioned by what's come before it he says every actual entity is determined by its internal relations to other actual entities Change is the description of the adventures of eternal objects and the evolving universe of actual things. Fuck. So that one's good, but let me, let me uh, tell you what I think this means. This, this second sentence, change. So these are the changes of ideas that he's talking about that represent the transformation of reality that we experience all the time. Change is the description of the adventures of eternal objects and the evolving universe of actual things. Remember, eternal objects are those forms he talked about. Uh, he, he links to Plato. But I think eternal objects, these forms, are not separable from the primordial nature of God or world of forms or mind of God where these things are supposed to exist. So I don't see this reading the same way. I see this reading like this. Change is the description of the adventures of God and the evolving universe of actual things. God is the experiencer and the object of its own experience. Whitehead has said as much. He said that they sh- that everything shares an identity, right? Everything shares, everything's all the same. So change is the description of the adventures of God in the evolving universe of actual things. And again, I'm reminded of that really old idea of this primordial computing machine. You've got the paper with all the punches in it. You feed it through the machine. It gets read by the machine. Now that getting read by the machine part, um, that's that's the equivalent of the knower. That's the that's the process of experience, right? It, the the cards being read through the machine. That's the process of experience. That's the adventure of God in the evolving universe. God is constantly transforming, you know, in actuality. Whitehead has said that that plays back on God, you know, and we can just use the word potentiality for that. Potentiality acts upon actuality, and actuality acts back upon conditionality, potentiality. It conditions it. And so you have this process, this unified process. And he says, Locke's phrase, there must be some real constitution on which any collection of simple ideas must depend. Remember, if simple ideas are just um, the objects of my experience out there in the world, they're my ideas of what's going on out there, they're in my mind, that they must have some constitution that they rest upon. What ideas depend on for their existence is mind, right? The mind of God. And Whitehead says, This doctrine of organism is the attempt to describe the world as a process of generation of individual actual entities, each with its own absolute self-attainment. This concrete finality of the individual is nothing else than a decision referent beyond itself. Man, my uh, hair's thinning up in my arms right now. Well, that brings me to my conclusion. I know this was a little bit of a longer one, guys. Thanks for hanging in there with me. I'm doing just as much learning as I'm teaching as, uh, as you guys are listening, but um, let's wrap it up this way. We began with the question, 
what the hell is an actual entity? We might have equally asked the same about eternal objects. Whitehead spends far more effort proposing what these hypothetical entities do, how they are structured, and how they interact with one another to generate the experience of reality, with very little emphasis on their origin story. Whitehead abandons substance, and in the process seems to abandon the quest for what is fundamental. He can state that experience is fundamental, or that mind is, but it's never so clear. We also hear of creativity with a capital C, the primordial nature of God, the mind of God, and of subjects too. But just where is the experience to be found in all of this? I'd say experience is fundamental all by itself, but Whitehead said unequivocally that there is no such thing as a detached mind. So where does this leave us? For me, we're left with a paradox, not surprisingly. Through the clouds of Whitehead's metaphysical model, we seem to have a thing which is experience and experiencer at once, a generative union of opposites. Let's examine eternal objects for a moment. To Whitehead, they stand outside of time, are required for actuality, and are fundamental in determining the forms our experience takes. As far as I can tell, there is no justification for supposing a multiplicity of eternal objects, as Whitehead does. In fact, there is no reason to make a distinction between the primordial nature of God as the realm of eternal objects from eternal objects themselves. Remember, if eternal objects are, are the stem cells of experience, the undifferentiated potential for experience, it can become any particular form of experience. Why then propose a multiplicity of eternal objects to account for multiplicity of form in the actual world? Doesn't it work just as well, and simpler by a long shot, to nix the notion of eternal objects entirely and substitute primordial nature of God as potentiality itself? In this formulation, the primordial nature of God, the mind of God, acts upon itself to manifest particular experience. This not only resolves the muddiness of the origin of eternal objects and actual entities, but also restores the oneness, the wholeness and unity at the heart of the spinozism that paved the way for process philosophy. The multiplicity of manifest forms in this reformulation falls neatly into Whitehead's notion of conditioned creativity and ultimate satisfaction. We begin with the mind's experience of itself and through this experience create a new changed subject. That subject experiences itself anew and finds the experience new also. This process, repeating eternally, generates ever new experience, conditioned by all the experience that came before it. The subject and its self-experience become a self-sustained process of becoming. From this slightly modified perspective, we can carry Whitehead's metaphysics forward just as he proposed. Each new experience exists within and is contingent upon all other experience. 
Experience interacts with all other experience too, as they constitute one dynamic fractal whole, eternally nested within itself. I know I risk ridicule for daring to question the masterfully laid out metaphysics of such a novel and influential thinker as Whitehead. But I appeal again to Occam's razor and to the intuitions of both Spinoza and Whitehead himself. I appeal to the simplest solution as the closest to reality. The simplest solution is one solution. The simplest model is one of completely shared identity. We can lay aside talk of primordial nature of God, consequent nature of God, eternal objects, actual entities, and the like, and remember that Whitehead called the universe a particular unity of self-experience. And that's the key. Self-experience. Whatever may be involved in experience, whatever makes it possible, it is the eternal object of experience. All is one, as they say, true even for experience and experiencer. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 